This morning, what we are going to do is go back to John. So if you have your copy of God's word, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to go back to John. We are going to see um, the same day, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus being the light of the world, his proclamation that he is the light of the world. If you walk in him, following him, you will never walk in darkness, ever. We saw the Jewish response to that. And really, two weeks ago was a flyby. If you were here two weeks ago, we we flew through the text. We can't do that this morning. We're not going to do that this morning. I'm okay with not doing that this morning. And I hope you're okay. We need to slow down. And Just two minutes on, on how I discern whether we need to speed up or slow down. Really, for me, it comes down to have we studied this already in John yet? When Jesus makes claims that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, as he did by saying, I am the light of the world during the Feast of Tabernacles, those are things that we saw clearly in John 1 that we can go back to and see again if we'd like to. But if we're going to get through this book in a couple years, which is my goal, and not linger until Jesus returns, we need to, we need to pick and choose our battles, so to speak. And as I came to this section of Scripture, I, I want to see the whole picture. I want to see the big picture, the broad picture. That's another reason why I take bigger chunks so that you can see where it fits in John. But as I came to this section of Scripture that we are coming to this morning, I realized we must slow down. Number one, we're coming to some phrases and some words that are so potent, so powerful, that they just can't be glossed over. But number two, I believe we need to hear this aspect of the gospel again from Jesus' lips as he emphasizes it in a new way, in a fresh way that he has not done so far in the gospel of John. So I want to read these verses. We're in John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 30, and I'm going to read through verse 47. We're only going to get through a couple verses this morning, but I want you to see the big picture, and then we'll kind of narrow it down. John chapter 8, verse 30. As Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I've seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, 
you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is it because it is because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Father, I pray that as we incline our ears to your testimony, as we give careful um, attention uh, to what you have to say to us this morning, God, please grant us the gift of illumination. May your spirit come in power and work in our hearts in such a way that we would be receptive, that we would be humble, that we would renounce any self-reliance, humble us, crush our souls to the ground, to the dust, and make us see Jesus more precious than anything this world has to offer. May we love him because he first loved us, and may we see that first love that he had for us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, this is a big section. If we were to do the flyby, I want to just uh, diagram this for you. If we were to do a flyby, this is originally how I outlined this passage and how I was going to preach this passage. We really see three arguments that the Jewish people use to try and evade Jesus' words. Jesus is preaching to them, and he's telling them desperately, Uh, phenomenally rich and majestic words, and they just want to move out of the way. They don't want those words. They're not receiving them. And they use three tactics. They use three ways to get out of the way of these words. First, they, they look to their own ethnicity. In verses 33 and verse 39, they say, we're descendants of Abraham. We don't need to do what you're telling us to do, and we aren't who you claim we are because we're descendants of Abraham. We're free people we don't, we don't need to do righteous works to be saved because we're already saved. We don't need to follow you alone because we are following in Abraham's footsteps. So they plead with their ethnicity. Number two, they plead with their religion. In verse 41, they say, God is our father. God's our father. God is the one who controls us. He's our father. We don't need your words. They're just trying to evade his words. So they use number one, look at our ethnicity. We don't need you. Number two, look at our father. God is our father. We don't need you. That's a very offensive thing, by the way. We'll get to this in a couple weeks when Jesus says to Jewish people, God is not your father. That's a very harsh thing to say. And they know it. And that's why in verse 41, they answer with a third aspect, uh, their own purity. They say, we're not born of fornication like you are. You were born out of wedlock. They did not believe the virgin birth. You were born out of wedlock, and therefore you were born in fornication. We were not born in fornication. Therefore, we have the 
uh, proper ethnical background. We have the proper ethnic understanding to be able to get to God on our own without any other need. We have the proper religious background. We don't need anything else. We have the proper purity background. We're fine on our own. We don't need you. Those three ways I believe we struggle with as well. Ways to evade Jesus' words, but we'll get to that. That would be the flyby. But as I started reading these verses and studying, and I looked at the flyby, I diagrammed it that way, I thought, you know what? Jesus says something so profound in verses 31 through 36. We need to slow down and take those verses. And you can see them. He's talking about free people and slaves. He's talking about the truth setting you free and slavery. And those fit with what he's been saying about light and darkness, that if you walk in the light, you'll be free. If you walk in the darkness, you're a slave to sin. So I thought, okay, well, this sermon will just be verses 31 through 36, being a slave of sin and being um, free in God's righteousness. But as I was studying these verses I realized we can't even take both of those yet together. We need to take one, and then we'll take the other. Jesus says these words in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain. So if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. But if the son hasn't made you free, you're not free. You're a slave of sin. Why does he say that? He says that because back in verse 30, he said that many, John records, that many came to believe in Jesus, but Jesus says, I know that there is true belief and false belief. And so verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You're really, genuinely, authentically my disciples, if you continue in my word. How do we continue in the word of God to be free? That's the question. How do we get out of the slavery that we are in? Are we in slavery? The Jewish people sure didn't think so. Verse 33, when Jesus says that the truth will make you free, they answer him and they say, we're Abraham's descendants. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. So we as Jewish people have never been enslaved to anyone. Well, that's not true. We all know that's not true. They were slaves in Egypt for a long time. Not to mention they were slaves in Egypt and now they're slaves to Rome. They're in captivity to Rome. So they're not even logical in what they're saying. They don't have true understanding, factual evidence. They say, we're not slaves. How can we become free? We're not slaves. It's a beautiful picture of what sin does. Sin blinds you. Sin, as we say often here, makes you stupid. Sin blinds you. Their sin of unbelief blinds them so they don't even see the reality that they are being governed by the Romans and they're slaves to the Romans. So they latch onto that statement. And since they latch onto the statement of being free versus being slaves, and Jesus goes there, I thought it would be good that we would go there as well. Jesus says that you are a slave to sin if you commit sin. What does this look like biblically? What does it mean to be a slave? When Jesus says you can be free if you know the truth and the truth will set you free, or you can choose slavery, you can be a slave. Where are you? Are you a slave to sin or are you free this morning? How do you know? How can you tell? If you are a slave this morning, can you choose freedom? If you are free, can you go back to slavery? What, what is this concept? 
That's what we're going to spend our morning discussing. Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. Um, This was his favorite book that he wrote. Uh, He wrote it in response to Erasmus, um, a Catholic priest, who wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, meaning you are free to choose God. Do good things, you can get to God. And Martin Luther wrote a book in response called The Bondage of the Will. In 1537, just nine years before Luther died, somebody asked him, what of your works is your favorite work? What of your, your works should we maintain? Should we work hard to preserve? And Martin Luther said this, I don't care if any of my works are preserved. You can let them all go. Just two you need to keep. The bondage of the will and the catechisms that I've written. Keep the catechisms, keep the bondage of the will, let everything else go. That's a huge statement from Martin Luther because he wrote over 40 volumes of material. He says, it can all go, the pinnacle of my writing is the bondage of the will. Why? Because understanding the truth about the bondage of our will will rightly enable us to understand how much we should attribute to God and how much we should attribute to ourselves in the work of salvation. That's the question that's at stake here. What can you do to be saved? What do you do to be saved? Luther knew this was the issue that was at the heart, the the problem of the Catholic Church. You might look at indulgences and say, well, they're wrong, or praying to Mary, or purgatory. Luther said none of those things are the issue. There's something beneath that, foundational to those. And the fundamental issue is can we ever do anything to save ourselves? Can we ever do anything to get saved ourselves? This is the fundamental question that he went to task in trying to answer biblically in response to Erasmus's book. This is the question. Are human beings so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God? Or else they can't happen. Are humans that sinful? Erasmus didn't believe that. Don't worry, I'm going to say that sentence a number of times. And that sentence actually comes from John Piper. As I was studying to preach on the slavery that we are in sin, um, I was live streaming the Together for the Gospel conference, just listening. And uh, I had a, a quote from the bondage of the will from Martin Luther in my sermon already. This was on Tuesday on Wednesday night. And so I'm just kind of listening, and he quoted the exact same quote that I was going to use. And I thought, wow, that's great. This is, this is awesome. This is a divine appointment. So I, I slowly start like paying less attention to my children and listening more intently to this sermon. Oh, he's saying everything I want him to say, only a lot better. And so I finally said, Hannah, can you please take the kids, lock myself in my office, and just started typing up. And, and so I was greatly helped. I would encourage you to listen to that sermon on t4g.org. So this is his sentence. This is coming from Luther, but Piper says it so well. Are human beings so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God? The issue with that is decisively fulfill. Martin Luther and Erasmus both agreed that you have free will. They both agreed you have free will. They define free will very differently. Erasmus said, your free will in doing good things is decisive in getting you to God. So God sends his son, Jesus dies on the cross, pays a penalty, but you will not be saved 
unless you decisively get up and walk to him and accept that gift. You are the decisive actor in receiving that gift. Martin Luther said, no, you don't have free will. Free will is your ability to do things. You must do things in salvation. You must. You have to do things. Martin Luther said, you must do things. It's obvious in Scripture. Believe, repent, have faith, all of those things. But they're never decisive. That's the issue. Erasmus said it's decisive. It's dependent on you. Luther said, no, it can't be dependent on you. We're enslaved to sin, so we're totally dependent on God's grace to rescue us from the bondage of sin. And ultimately, this will make all the difference. And I want to spend some time at the end of our time together on why this matters. Why this is so important. So, for Luther, the issue of man's bondage to sin and moral inability to believe and be holy was the linchpin of the Reformation. We often think of uh, Tetzel and we think of indulgences and we think of all of these other aspects of the Reformation. And yes, he went after that biblically. But the linchpin of the whole Reformation in Luther's mind was man's bondage to sin and moral inability to believe. The freedom of God and therefore the freedom of the gospel and therefore the salvation of man and therefore the glory of God are all at stake in this controversy. I know you know this controversy. That's why Luther loved this book that he wrote because it helped specify biblically uh, what the Bible has to say about our will. So, are human beings so sinful that God's sovereign grace alone must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God? Or else that cannot happen. Is that the case? I believe there are at least five ways. I actually came up with eight ways in the Bible, but I don't think we'll have time to get to the eight. So we'll stick with five. And these are five that were confirmed by my brother John Piper. So I was greatly encouraged and helped by these. Five ways the Bible describes the bondage of the will. Slavery. Jesus says it in John 8. You're a slave to sin and the truth will set you free. The son will make you free. He's already using that language. You can't hear unless God, you are God's at the end of the passage in verse 47. You won't even be able to come to him. So it's already there. But let's, let's press into it a little bit more. The reality is, who cares what Luther says? Um, Luther believed this. Zwingli believed this. Calvin believed this. Edwards believed this. All of the men that you would uh, be encouraged by and that we would follow their doctrines and what they believe about the Bible believe this. But the bottom line is, I don't care what they believe. You shouldn't care what I believe. Nobody, it doesn't matter what my opinion is. The question is, what does the Bible say? And if the Bible doesn't say this this morning, then just throw this sermon away and move on. I believe the Bible is very clear on this issue of our slavery to sin. So, number one, let me give you five ways. They're all different ways, but they're just different descriptions of the same bondage that we have to sin. Five ways it's described biblically. Number one, the bondage of legal guilt and divine condemnation. The bondage of legal guilt and divine condemnation. This is unique to the five because this is outside of us. This is something that is really uh, about God and, and our standing before him versus who we are internally. So this is very different than the others. It's unique. You all know Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and therefore we are all under a bondage. We're, under, we're in a bondage under divine condemnation. We're going to have to 
take a tour through God's Word. So I put the verses up on the screen, I think. We've got all of them. If they're not there, I'm sorry. You can flip with me as fast as you can to these verses. But I, I wanted to put these up there so that you would have the reference and you'd be able to read it if we can't move. We're going to have to be moving fast. Uh, so if you can't move too quickly, it's okay. First passage that we must go to is Romans 3. Turn to Romans chapter 3. You know verse 23, I just quoted it to you. All have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what is this legal guilt that we are in bondage to? It's in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then are we better than they? So are Jewish people better than uh, Gentile people? Not at all. Do we have any better legal standing because of our ethnicity? No. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, of which that's everyone, are all under sin. Under, that's a key word. You're stuck in sin. You're under sin. There is a bondage that you are under. And not only are you under sin, but if you drop down to verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So you're under sin, you're under the law, you must attain a certain level of righteousness to be acceptable before God, and you failed. So you're under the law. And because you and I are under the law, every mouth will be closed, all the world may be accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin alone. You can't be saved by doing works of the law, you're under the law. You're in bondage to the legal requirement of the law that you and I have not met. The legal requirement of the law to get to God is you must be perfect. One sin makes you fall short and you are under condemnation. You're under sin, under the law. That's why Romans 2.5 says that we are storing up wrath for ourselves. We're storing up wrath by sinning. The more that we sin, the more that we are slaves to sin, the more wrath is stored up. John 3.36, we already looked at this a while ago. Um, If you obey the Son, if you believe in Him, you'll be free, you'll be forgiven. But if you do not obey the Son, if you do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on you, remains on you. It's already there. If you're a non-believer here this morning... God's wrath is hanging over your head. It's already there. There's a provision made to get rid of it, but it's there. It's not like it will come when you die. It's hanging over you, ready to pour out. You say, wow, that's a little harsh, isn't it? It is if you don't understand the holiness of God. We have mocked our God. We've gladly chosen sin over serving God. And the degree of our punishment is the degree of who we have sinned against. We've sinned against a holy, infinite God. Therefore, our punishment is holy and infinite as well. We are in bondage. We are slaves to a legal obligation that we cannot attain to. Therefore, we are under divine condemnation. Instantly, Ephesians 2 will say we are children of wrath. That's number one. Number two, we are in bondage with the love for the darkness. We are in bondage with the love 
for the darkness. This is the bondage, the slavery to a love. Number three is going to be hate. We're going to talk about what we hate as unbelievers. But number two is love. We are enslaved to love. But what love is it? John chapter 3. Again, you know this. We've gone through this before already. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We love darkness as non-believers, as natural men and women. Before Jesus saves us, we love darkness. We hate the light. This is so key. The bondage that keeps us from coming to Jesus is not that the light is lacking. The slavery that we are in is not that we can't see the light enough. The slavery is that we love the darkness so much that we hate the light. We see the light clearly, but we hate it because we love the darkness. This is an issue of love. This is an issue of what you are born loving from the moment that you're born. You're born loving yourself. You're born loving darkness. And therefore, since that is your will, you cannot just change your affections. You cannot just change your desires and embrace as lovely and beautiful and bright and glorious what you see as disgusting. You can't just change that. Uh, we know this physically, right? We know um, I enjoy coffee probably a little bit too much. I love coffee. I savor coffee. I enjoy coffee. It's magnificent. I believe it will be flowing in heaven for us. My wife despises coffee. Even if she smells it, she has this face, mm, that's gross. She despises coffee. If I give her a cup of coffee, I cannot tell her, Hannah, love it. Get with the program. Everybody does. Love it. That won't work. She can't just instantly start to love that which she hates. Now, there can be some sense of an acquired taste. She can work towards it. But that first sip will always be, Ugh, I, don't, I don't like that. And that's just the natural thing. We're talking supernaturally. You are born in your very nature, loving the darkness. Therefore, when Jesus says, you must come to the light to be saved, you can't just one day wake up and say, oh, I'm going to come to the light on my own. You hate the light and you love the darkness. This isn't something that you choose to love or hate. You come into the world doing this. Those of you who have children don't need any explanation on this. Those of you who babysit children, who take care of children, you do not need any explanation of this. Nobody taught my precious little two-year-old son to be angry, to pull my daughter's hair, or to shove her. I literally looked at him one day and thought, where did that come from? My daughter was a much more precious little angel and she would never have done that. Ethan, when he, you don't want to see him when he's mad. He pulls her hair. No one taught. I, I don't go around pulling Hannah's hair. I don't go around pulling Chelsea's hair. He doesn't see people in his life pulling people's hair. Where did that come from? That came from a heart that says, I love myself. I love darkness. I'm not going to come to the light. 
These are not things that we are doing against our will. This is our will. We're not, oh, I don't want to sin. Oh, I sinned again. This is our will. And what is it about the darkness that we love so much? Turn to chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 43. Again, you know this. John chapter 5, verse 43. I have come in my Father's name. You didn't receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Why? How can you believe, rhetorical question, meaning you can't, you can't believe me, you can't receive me, John chapter 1, when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. You can't receive me because you're receiving glory. So this is a love for darkness of self-glorification. We love glory. So when Jesus comes and says, you need to deny your glory, my glory will be your glory. And if you keep pursuing your own glory, you can't follow me. There's no way we can love that by ourselves in our own nature. There's no way we can wake up one day loving that. We are slaves to a love for the darkness. Number three, we are slaves. We are in bondage to a hatred for the supremacy of God. We are in bondage to a hatred for the supremacy of God. So this is shifting from what we love to what we hate. We love the darkness, but we also have hate. Turn to Romans chapter 8. This is a devastating verse. This is a devastating verse. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. For the mind set on the flesh, you could kind of squish, my Bible says the mind set on the flesh. You could kind of squish those two words, the mindset of the flesh. There's no English equivalent to this word mind in the Greek. There's no English equivalent. You could say attitude, your bent, your disposition, your mindset. It's who you are at the core. The mindset of the flesh, who you are to the core, is death. But the mindset of the spirit, who you are at the core, if you are saved, is life and peace. Why? Why, Paul? Why is the mindset of a natural fleshly man death? Because, verse 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. We hate God. Why? Why do we hate God? Because it does not subject itself to the law of God because it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those are massive weighty cannots. We are hostile to God. We do not subject ourselves to God's law. We are not able to do so, and we cannot please God. We cannot. This is real bondage to a disposition, to a mindset that is hostile to God. You don't have to learn this hostility. You're born with this hostility. Why? Why are we hostile? Paul tells us it's because we cannot, we do not submit ourselves, subject ourselves to the law of God. We hate submission. We hate submission. That's what it means to be human, right? Just to be autonomous, to fight for your autonomy. So here comes God and he says, unless you submit to everything I say and everything I demand and everything that I am, you can't follow me. Give up your will. Galatians 2.20, you must be crucified with Christ or else you cannot live. We hate that. We hate to submit. We hate to take our 
autonomy, have our autonomy taken away. I know I've mentioned this before, but this is, this is the heart that I've experienced, at least in evangelism, with people that do not want to submit to the gospel. Um, people that know about Jesus and say, there's things in this book that I just don't, I, I can't really answer and I just can't follow God that I don't understand. And I always take them to my favorite explanation of what's going on in their heart. I say, give me a couple. Tell me, you know, I can't believe that Jonah got swallowed by a fish and got spit. I can't believe that. I can't believe all the animals fit on the ark. How does that work? I don't, I don't know. So I say, write them down. Give me a list. I'll, I'll just go eat a brownie and drink a glass of milk. You write your list in peace, and I'll come back, and we'll talk about it, okay? We write a list, good list, 30 things, 35 things, whatever objections you know that there are to Christianity. And I take the list and I say, great list. These are good. Good, good questions, genuine questions. Now, here's the real question. If I go through this list and I answer every objection you have, I can do that. It might take a month, but I can go through every question, write a little paragraph or a paper, give you an answer, a biblical answer for all these questions you have. You're telling me this is what's standing in the way between you and submitting to God. These questions. So if I answer these questions for you, then you'll be a Christian, right? I've never had one person as I've done that. I've done that at least a dozen times. I've never had one person tell me, yeah, I'll be a Christian. Every person says, no. To which I crumple up the list and I say, it's not about the list then. There's something else. What is it? The longer that I've done this, the more I've gotten the answer. I literally had somebody a couple months ago say, I don't want to submit to God. Literally, verbatim. I don't want to submit to God. That's the issue. And that's called sin. And I understand that. I get that. We hate the supremacy of God in our lives. We're born hating that. So what's the alternative? Verse 9, Paul gives us, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the answer is of the mindset of the Spirit. The Spirit giving you a new mindset. John 3 would tell us new birth. You need the mindset of the Spirit. You need the Spirit dwelling in you. The reality is this slavery to a hatred for the supremacy of God, this is the problem with it. You cannot submit to a law whose first command is that you submit to a God and love a God that you hate. You can't submit to a law whose first command is you must submit to and love a God you hate. You can't do that. Your nature will not allow you to do that. Your nature has to be changed. Who you are has to be changed. That's number three. Number four, you are enslaved. We are in bondage to spiritual death. We are in bondage to spiritual death. This is all over the Bible. Luke 15, we'll get to this with the prodigal son during the summer. Um, the prodigal son comes back. The father is pleading with the older brother, please come, please celebrate. And he says, because this son of yours was dead, but is now alive. He was dead, but is now alive. This imagery is all over the Bible, but probably no better place than Ephesians chapter 2. You know this verse. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see it and see the universality of it. Nobody's outside of these yous. And Paul makes that emphatically clear. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. That should really end the debate right there. How can dead people raise themselves? That should end the debate. We are in bondage to spiritual death in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So you're dead, but you're walking. You are a zombie spiritually. You are walking dead, but you are unable to walk in your deadness towards life. Verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. All of us, all, universally. All of mankind is locked into the desires of the flesh by nature, by nature children of wrath. You don't have to learn how to sin. You don't become a sinner because you sin. This was the huge debate that Augustine and Pelagius had. Augustine said biblically, uh, the Bible says you're born in sin. You have a sin nature, and therefore we shouldn't be surprised when you sin because you're born with a sin nature. Pelagius said you're born innocent, and you only sin because you either choose to sin or somebody around you forces you by the nature, uh, the nurture around you to sin. So Pelagius said you're born innocent, and you get to pick. Augustine said, biblically, rightfully so, Psalm 51 in sin, my mother conceived me. I, we're sinners through and through by our, by our very nature. So you, you sin out of your nature. You aren't a sinner because you sin. You sin because your nature is that of a sinner. So we're spiritually dead and we're enslaved to that. You cannot get yourself to be alive when you're dead. Finally, number five, the bondage of blindness to the glory of Jesus. The bondage of blindness to the glory of Jesus. We are enslaved to a blindness. We can't see. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom however not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which, so this is the gospel, none of the rulers of this age have understood. For if they had understood it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So you say, Paul, why didn't these rulers, why, why couldn't they understand it? They didn't understand it. Is it because they weren't intelligent enough? Is it because they didn't know enough? Why didn't they understand the gospel? Drop down to verse 13. The things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Again, the gospel, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It's the exact same thing he writes in Romans 8, right? You cannot understand the things of God if you are a natural man. And here's the bad news. We are all natural men and women. That's just saying that natural man is the same idea in Romans 8 of the, the mindset of the natural fleshly man. This is a devastating death sentence. Everyone is a natural man, and everyone who is a natural man, that's everyone, cannot accept and understand the things of God. You can't. And if that weren't enough, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, 
you're already blind in your nature, and Satan jumps on you and blindfolds you. So you're blind, and now you're blindfolded. You're a blindfolded blind man. Second Corinthians 4, 4, the, the, the devil blinds the eyes and the minds of those who are natural men. So the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ must shine through the blindfold, shine through the blindness. No human beings can see that glory apart from the deliverance of God from human and satanic blindness. So those are five pictures, biblical pictures of our bondage, our slavery. When Jesus says, you, if you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. If that's your practice, if that's your habit, you're a slave to it and you can't get out of it. I think the Bible would agree with that. But, if we just ended there, let's pray. It's the most hopeless sermon ever. And this is why I love Jesus. This is why I love sovereign grace. I was blind, but now I see. I couldn't do that. I was lost, now I'm found. I couldn't do that. I was dead, now I'm alive. How did that happen? In spite of all of our slavery... God has an answer. And his answer is the hope of sovereign grace. So, to the bondage of our guilty legal status under God's condemnation. We're guilty, condemned, lawbreakers, unable to be perfect again. To that slavery, sovereign grace jumps in and says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Christ will bear our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ is going to bear the penalty of our sin because he became sin for us. 1 Peter 3.18 Jesus the just became sin for us, the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He paid the penalty. Romans 3.24 We are justified by his grace as a gift. We are declared righteous because of the work that he did on the cross. As a gift. Literally in in, uh, the Greek, gift means without a cause. God loved us without a cause of our doing. So our choosing him, which you did if you're saved, our repentance, our belief, all of that happened after life was given. New birth happened. Salvation was granted. It's a, it's a quick, um, God gives new birth, you're able to believe. It's our, our free will in choosing God is not decisive. We've already studied that in John multiple times. The reality is the finished work of Jesus settles the issue of our legal bondage. Jesus paid it all. We sing that song. Jesus paid it all. If he paid it all, then he made the way for you to be free by canceling the record of your legal guilt. Number two, to the bondage of self-love, of the love for darkness, of the love for glory. Sovereign grace says, 2 Timothy 2, 25-26, I will give you the gift of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth to come to your senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Repentance is a gift from God. If you have repented, that is a gift that God gave you. You didn't do that on your own. You couldn't have done that on your own because you loved your sin. So God says, I'll graciously give you a gift to turn from sin and turn to me. To the bondage of our hatred for the supremacy of God and submitting to his law, sovereign grace says, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is Lord. That means he's master. I subject myself to him. No one can say those words and truly mean them. It's not just speaking them. No one can mean those words from your heart except by the Spirit. So here's encouragement. If you're here this morning and you have ever said from your heart genuinely so, Jesus is my Lord and I subject myself to him. If you've ever said that, you didn't do that. The Spirit did that caused life to happen in you so that you would be able to say that because apart from him doing that, you couldn't and would never have said that. God Almighty did that in your heart. So whenever you say that, that is an evidence of God's grace that he has gripped your heart and he has given you life. To the bondage of spiritual death, sovereign grace says, you were dead in your trespasses, but I will make you alive in Christ. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn back over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul is so excited about this truth, and he wants to be so precise and theologically accurate that he has to put in a parenthetical statement. He made us alive together with Christ. That was by grace you've been saved. He made us alive by grace. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did it. You know verses 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved. So again, if you see Jesus as more precious than anything in this world, if there are moments in your life where you say, yes, I want him and nothing else, you're a walking miracle. You're a miracle. God created a new creation. You are a new creature. The old things are gone. The new things have come. You're a miracle. God says to the bondage of our spiritual blindness, our spiritual blindness, sovereign grace says, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, let there be light. Let there be light. And instantly the gospel shines in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's Second um, Corinthians 4, 6. God um, shines forth so that you can see him clearly. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the gospel. God says, let there be light. God says, let there be light. So, are human beings so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill Every human inclination to believe and obey God. Luther said yes. Calvin said yes. Zwingli said yes. I say yes. And I believe the Bible says yes. I believe the Bible is the reason why we all say yes. By the way, sovereign grace finishes what it starts. You know, Philippians 1, 6, he who began the good work, he did it, will complete it. Just three verses you can write down. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, May God fulfill every resolve for good and the work of faith by his power. If you've ever had a resolve to do good works, you will never be able to do them if God doesn't fulfill those desires. May God fulfill those desires. Bring them to completion. You can have all the good works, all the resolve to do anything that you want, but you can't, even as a believer, if God isn't in that work. Um, you know, First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse ten. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse ten. Paul says, "By the grace of God, I am what I am. Though I worked harder than all of the rest, it was not I, but God who was working in me." So he says, "I'm going to work as hard as I can, but I know that my work is not my own. 
It's not my own. Paul's working is not being added to God's working. It's not God does his best, we'll do the rest, or we do our best, God does the rest. God's working in Paul produced Paul's working. God's working in Paul produces Paul's working. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, last one. Work out, fulfill, complete, make it happen, your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out what you already have. Again, our working, both in sanctification and in salvation, a lot of people think that theologically we'd call it provenient grace. That God gives you the grace, and then he just waits to see what you're going to do. Here's grace. Will you believe? And you are the decisive actor. That would be semi-Pelagianism, if you want the, the theological term. I'll give you provenient grace, and then you do the decisive work. And if you don't, God just sits there going, man, I crushed my son for you, and and you're not going to come. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, in our sanctification, our working is not added to God's working. Our working is God's working, and that's the exact same thing in salvation. Our work of believe, repent, have faith, all those things, they're not added to culminate and decisively make salvation happen. They happen because God has granted the gift of life and salvation. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, in efficacious grace, that's saving grace, working grace that accomplishes something. We are not merely passive, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest. God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all. So that is what he produces, our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We only are the proper actors We are in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. He's the author. He's the fountain. He's the one who's making these things happen. So this morning, if you love Jesus and you see him as lovely and beautiful, you owe it all to grace. You owe it all to grace. You do not owe it to God jump-starting your heart and then waiting to see what you would do. You don't owe it to God jump-starting your heart And your will and stepping back and watching and waiting to see if you would make a saving contribution or a work or an act or a belief that would be decisive. No, it's the exact opposite. From the day that he jumpstarts your heart, the grace of God will always and only be the decisive producer of every act of obedience that you will ever commit. Till eternity. So, Why spend time on this? Number one, I think Jesus would have us do that because he said, if the truth sets you free, you're free indeed. If the Son makes you free, not if you get yourself free. But he talks about slavery to to sin, which I, I know that most of you, if not all of you, know those concepts. So why spend an entire sermon on it? Let me give you a couple of rationale for why. If we only always preach the new freedom that we have in Jesus, the new identity that we have in Jesus, if that's all we preach, 
then we aren't going to understand why grace is amazing. We're going to say it. Grace is amazing. Jesus is amazing. But why again? What were we saved from? How will you feel or savor or see any degree of gratitude and live for the praise of the glory of God's grace if you don't understand what he saved you from? A second rationale. I need this message. I was saved at a young age. I still did wicked things. I know my sinful heart. But maybe some of you being saved later in life, you instantly saw the difference that grace made. You instantly saw. Grace changed me. I woke up one morning and I loved Jesus. That's impossible because I lived my entire life hating him. So this sermon is more for me than necessarily it is for you because you know these things. You would be able to communicate these truths experientially. But I know that there are many who doubt their salvation, especially younger men and women, myself included when I was in high school, because I was always asking the question, did I really get saved? Did God really save me? Because I wasn't really that bad. I mean, I repented from yelling at my parents to not take out the trash. Like, that's all it was. I need to be reminded. I need to be informed of what a horrible person I was and what horrible person died when I was seven by the grace of God. Without this teaching, I wouldn't know that. So the only way I can know it experientially is the sin that I have committed. And I know my heart. I know I'm wicked and I needed God's grace. But biblically, this informs all of us. The playing field is leveled. We are nothing apart from him. And the bottom line, number three, is God's grace will never be glorified as it ought unless our church says from the heart, Romans 11, from him, through him, and to him be all things. That includes the salvation that you have received. That includes your obedience. A gift of God's grace. Can I just plead with you? If you have not received God's grace, you need to plead with him today. Say, help, I can't change my heart. I can't change my affections. I can't change my will. I need the new birth. Give me a new heart. Give me a new will. Give me new affections. If you see the legal bondage that you have and the divine condemnation that is in store because of your sins, today is the day to say, God, please help. And today would be the day of salvation if you were to do that. For those of you in this room who have done that, I think it would only be fitting if we would thank the Lord. There are things that are too wonderful to be spoken. So let's speak some of them, but let's sing most of them. Father, thank you so much for your grace. It is only because of the grace of God that we are able to believe, that we are able to repent, that we are able to turn to Jesus Christ at all. And so we thank you that while we were lost, while we were dead, you pursued us. You are our life. You are everything. 
We love you.